This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which you know good and camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, congratulations are in order, Ann Camp. Uh, Chris has just welcomed a new addition to the Butler family, and we are so excited about that. Congratulations, Chris. What a uh, a blessing. Hey, thank you so much. It is uh, just a tremendous blessing. You know, it's a little bit crazy in these uh, early days, but we couldn't be happier to have our fifth uh, little one. Number Azeem five. Butler. Say the name again. Azim. Azim. Okay, I like that. They're all A's? They all start with A? Uh, so they all have A, Z, and C names. We alternate which one goes to the first uh, name or which one goes to the middle name. Got you. I like that. I like that. I like that. Well, again, congratulations, man. That is just such a blessing. And I'm just surprised and happy that you are even able to make it on today with a newborn uh, and, and all the stuff that's going on. So God bless you and, and the Butler family. May you uh, continue to grow strong. And we are uh, really just excited about that and can't wait to meet them. Uh, this should be fun. Well, it looks like our Bears barely lost uh, on Monday Night Football, but at least they're you know they're they're being competitive these days. And so they are. That, that one was taken away, time. Justin. That was yeah. that one was taken away. It was taken away, man. Away. And I I don't I don't know how much I believe in, in in moral victories, but to see them competing in this way uh, is is better than what it could be like. Um, we know that, uh, and again, I've said this before, and it's it's still football season in my world, but I can also always make an exception to talk bad about the uh, Lakers, who really don't look like they have a lot of team chemistry. Uh, they've won a few games, they've lost some, but it doesn't look like they're going to be one of the top teams. And, you know, that, that just breaks my heart uh, to see that. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is, and hopefully the folks, uh, I know we have some uh, – some Lakers fans out there, unfortunately, that listen to the end campaign and, you know, best of luck to you guys as well. I uh, hope you lose the rest of the games this season. But anyway, we uh, are are here to talk about other stuff. Uh, so as always, we got some good stuff coming up for you. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. I like this. This first topic is, is going to be is going to be really interesting, Chris. And, and let me start it off this way with a little bit of history, as I like to do. Give you some context. In 1993, Dr. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist who's now, I believe, at the University of Virginia, coined the term culture war. He coined that term in his book uh, named culture war, the struggle to define America. Now, he says that he he didn't at all mean for this term to be used as it is today, as a political cudgel or a political weapon. 
But unfortunately, people like Pat Buchanan quickly began to use it in that manner. Uh, not even maybe you know one year later in 1992, uh, Buchanan used it that way at the Republican National Convention when Buchanan said this. He said, there is a religious war going on in this country. It's a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War. Now, again, Dr. Hunter uh, meant only for this term to be used descriptively uh, to describe an ongoing conflict between conservative Judeo-Christian groups and secularists over issues like condoms in school, abortion and so on. What he saw was a cultural struggle based on two different understandings of national identity. The people in this struggle who he interviewed for his book uh, said they felt like they were in a war. So he called it a culture war. Now, much of this is discussed in a 2018 Wall Street Journal article by Jason Willick about Hunter's book. And and in that article, it it says that the, the larger culture war started when the denominational wars between Protestants and Catholics actually stopped or slowed down. These Orthodox groups ended up getting together with Jewish groups against a secular progressive view of the world that was rapidly gaining influence. Uh, Their traditionalist vision held that truth was rooted in an authority outside of self. So it would be rooted in the Bible or the, the Torah or so on. Thus, it, it emphasized truth of the past. It emphasized kind of a, a timeless truth. But the non-traditionalist or postmodern enlightenment, these progressives, that vision rejected that transcendent and authoritative tradition. For these more progressive folks or liberal folks, freedom or liberation was the ultimate good. Uh, this this kind of self-belonging, as Alan Noble writes about really well in his new book, uh, You're Not Your Own, became the ultimate good for these folks. And so there's this battle between the traditionalists and the non-traditionalists. Dr. Hunter notes that the American culture war took place primarily within a sector of white America, namely between affluent white progressives and affluent white conservatives in the donor and activist class. So you have conservatives, you have progressives. They're both in the donor class. They're both activists. They're both uh, uh, very affluent. And that's who this was primarily between. And still today, this culture war between conservatives and progressives rages on. Now, it's diversified a bit to include race issues, but it's still very much the same framework. And most recently, it reared its ugly head in the debate about critical race theory and grade school education. There's a spirited debate going on about how big a role this actually played in the Virginia gubernatorial race, where Republican Glenn Youngkin beat Democratic uh, candidate and former governor, who was the favorite, Terry McAuliffe. Now, part of the issues that were going on, you had Virginia public schools were closed and many people felt like those during the pandemic, the the school issue was handled very poorly. There was also conversation about what was actually being taught in the schools. Uh, Major topics of discussion where I think we may have talked about this before, but Terry McAuliffe actually said that parents shouldn't be telling teachers what they should be teaching their kids, which is a really bad quote for, for a lot of different reasons. But those are some of the dynamics that we saw in this particular uh, uh, race. 
Now, I've said this before, Chris, and and maybe it bears saying again, so I will. I think the critical race theory debate is overblown. I think that it's being used as a political football and that it's being used to taint any conversation about racial justice. And from that point of view, I think it is completely shameful what some folks are doing with this, Uh, namely someone like Christopher Rufo who is a conservative activist and political operative, he has himself claimed to have weaponized the term against progressives. He cynically boasts about having manipulated the debate to brand these progressive conversations with the scare term critical race theory. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can I'll read his his own words in one of his own tweets. Uh, Rufo said this. He said, we have successfully frozen their their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have we have decodified the term and recodified the term to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Now, when I read that quote, Chris, I'll be honest with you. The first thing that comes to mind to me is that this is not how peacemakers talk. Uh, this is not how someone who's trying to heal Americans and, a, and heal the American discourse would describe their work. At least I hope not. Uh, This is the language to me of a more Machiavellian political operative who's willing to do whatever he has to do to get political power for his side. But the sad thing is, Chris, some Christians are running with this narrative and have allowed it to harden their hearts when it comes to racial justice. And I think that is. Really sad, I think it's really going people are really going to continue to suffer because of it and the church. Uh, will continue to be divided until we get past those kind of narratives and going along with those kind of uh, projects. Again, I don't think a significant number of grade school kids are being taught critical race theory. That's something that is taught in college and grad schools and things of that nature primarily. It's just not happening happening in the way that someone like Rufo would have you believe. And he's even admitted that he's kind of throwing a whole bunch of stuff under that label. That said, There is a reason that I have not and will not fully endorse critical race theory. And it would be dishonest of me based on what I see on almost a daily basis. Not to admit that a lot of grade school administrators and teachers are indeed influenced to some extent by things like critical race theory and concepts like intersectionality. Now, to me, neither of which are are all bad. But I think both have some very problematic aspects based on certain iterations. And there are different iterations of those things. But the truth is, Chris, if you go to public schools in most major cities, Atlanta, Chicago and so on, on any given day, you shouldn't be surprised if you see public school staff wearing shirts with leftward social activist messages with pride flag colors. Uh, and I don't think that should be ignored within this conversation. I think we do it in, in justice if we if we ignore that. And, and for people like us, Chris, who care about racial justice, who think 
the kids definitely need to get a real and honest education about American history. And we should not leave out the tough stuff. We're not supposed to talk about the fact that maybe there is some messaging and symbolism in these schools and around these. So that that probably isn't helpful to the conversation. We're not supposed to say that, but we don't really play by those rules. And the thing about what you see in some of these schools, the symbolism and all that, in a, in a way, it's kind of benign. Right. But in another way, it represents an ideology, namely a novel gender ideology that many parents don't want their children exposed to or that they want to be the ones to have that conversation with their kids and how to deal with it. But it seems that progressives in many instances are determined to promote that to children anyway. And I think that's where one of the real. So there's some fake controversy here. I think that's where some of the real controversy lies. So here we are, Chris. In this new version of the culture war with really, really the pretty, pretty much the same framework with the same people kind of pulling the strings. Uh, One one side has gone out of its way to wickedly obscure and taint a much needed conversation about racial justice in a country that has had too many racial issues in in a real way. And then another on the, the other side is using race to introduce a number of secular progressive theories that could be very dangerous. And I think, Chris, the big question that we must answer is. Which side of this culture war should Christians choose? That's the question of the day to me. And it's it's clear that some people have made that decision of, of which side to go with. My message, Chris. Is that we shouldn't pick a side in this culture war at all. That we will not depolarize or heal America and fix our biggest problems, including racial injustice, if we attach ourselves and our public witness to either side of this distorted culture war framework. Which is not to say we shouldn't engage, but to choose a side in this war is to assume that one side is actually gets it right or close enough to right. Or it's to assume that there's just not another viable option. But the question I ask quite a bit is, what do we do when both are wrong and both aren't constructive? One of the AND campaign's primary assertions is that neither progressives nor conservatives are getting justice or moral order right. And that there are other options. We maintain that stance. And it feels like we see people trying to force these triangular or circular pegs into a square to say, all I see is circles and triangles. So either I'm a progressive or I'm a conservative when the actual solution may not be either, but people can't see past those two pegs. They can't see another option. And I'll be honest with you. I have no idea, Chris, why, especially when it comes to Christians of color, why they would join the culture war, which is not of our own making and doesn't really even fit our public witness very well at all. But we kind of force ourselves into one side or the other and then hate the other side. But that's exactly what's happening to the church, Chris. That's exactly what I see happening, and how we label each other based on these cult, this culture war framework. And it's so bad in certain instances that some of us have trouble understanding the application of Christian doctrine in the public square. Outside of a culture war framework. 
In other words, our faith is being shaped by the culture war. Our view of Christianity and Jesus has to fit one of these culture war narratives or we really can't understand it. And to me, that's embarrassing. And to me, that is very dangerous. But, Chris, I want to ask you this question, the big question of the day. Which side of this culture war should Christians choose and which one have you chosen? Yeah, I mean, I think you lay it out real well. If if there is a side to choose, uh, it's sort of a third side. I, I sort of look at it as a, as a higher level. And so it's, it's not a side uh, in this conversation. Um, I really am intrigued by the, uh, the, the quote that you had from uh, Rufo at the top of this discussion, because you, you said something very interesting there, that that's not how peacemakers talk. Uh, that's not how Christians in the public square would describe their work. Uh, and I think it's very helpful to point out that kind of quote. And I'm sure uh, with a, a few minutes, I could find similar quotes where folks on the left are saying the quiet part out loud uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, and and I, I think it's really important to point out that there are uh, folks who are academics, who are uh, sort of political operatives and political professionals uh, who have actually thought this through and are manipulating the conversation. Uh, there are people in media, uh, in government, in culture, uh, who are deliberately and nefariously um, profiting uh, in terms of building their own power, in terms of building their own brand, in terms of making a lot of money uh, off of perpetuating this culture war. And the reason to me, Justin, that that's so evil is that the vast, vast majority of Americans probably even most of the people who listen to the church politics podcast are not academics or political operatives uh, or, you know, sort of brand and messaging professionals. Like these, most Americans are folks who are out there working jobs, raising families, um, leading churches, whatever, but trying to just like lead a regular everyday life. And it's important for us to point out uh, that there are really people uh, who have a vested interest in manipulating uh, your emotions, it, manipulating the depth of the values that you hold, manipulating um, the importance of your own identity for their own profit, right? Like the vast majority of us, the reason I don't choose a side in the culture war is because I don't think me or my community or my church or my family get anything out of either side winning uh, the culture war. Uh, and, and when you listen to somebody like Rufo, uh, and, and again, if I had a few moments, I'm sure I could find folks on the other side who would speak similarly. Uh, but, but really the interest there is not actually in winning the culture war. It's actually just in perpetuating the culture war uh, because that just continues and continues to consolidate more and more power into the hands of a few of these folks uh, who who have this vested interest in perpetuating this war and keeping us afraid of each other and keeping us in a space where we can't talk to one another, can't um, have relationship. And be because you can't do those things, you certainly can't build coalitions that would actually drive real significant change that would improve the lives of the vast majority of people uh, in the United States. 
Um, and so as those of us who do see ourselves as peacemakers um, and, and, and have a goal to heal our uh, public discourse, uh, to fix some of the things in our government and get it into a place where we can start to actually do stuff and actually help people, which again, th- this is sort of a, a, a core part of the end campaigns framework uh, is that politics, uh, civics, government, all this stuff, is it, it is a platform, at least we see it this way, to love our neighbor. And it's very hard right now to get anything done uh, that actually improves the our own lives or the lives of our neighbors, uh, the lives of the least among us. We can't do anything because nothing works because of this perpetual uh, sort of false war. Um, and so I, I think it's really important for us to understand not only that we shouldn't choose a side, but that there are people who are actually manipulating this conversation on purpose. And and this, friends, goes to what you hear on the news, what you see on your social media feeds, um, a lot of stuff, what you, what you see printed. Uh, it, is, it is maybe not fair, uh, but we live in a world right now where we have to do a little bit uh, extra work in terms of where we source uh, information on the public discourse and how we process that information. Uh, we need to be very careful uh, with it and, and sort of bring bring your Bible with you to the news uh, and and bring uh, Sunday's sermon with you to the, the social media streams, the stuff that's coming from your social media, because this stuff is uh, it's been done to you on purpose. Um, and, and if I can speak to one other thing with the CRT in particular, because as, as we heard at the top of Justin's sort of intro to this topic, there is this effort to actually consolidate. And I think both sides of the culture are sort of working on this, but there is this effort to consolidate uh, everything that is sort of part of the whole sort of secular progressive framework into this idea of critical race theory. And what that does is takes a moral high ground that really, I think that our ancestors, our predecessors worked really hard and made a lot of sacrifices uh, to establish and gain that moral high ground uh, in terms of the pursuit of racial justice uh, in particular. To take that moral high ground and then uh, try to use it to pursue the aims of secular progressivism is, is it is i mean almost offensive to me justin like it when you look at what was what was sacrificed to gain that moral high ground uh, and then to think that you can just take these other ideas and fold them into racial justice and just start operating off of that moral high ground when the work wasn't put in to really establish the moral high ground for these broader ideas of secular progressivism. And as I have said uh, in in this podcast, I've said it in many different environments, if we want to have that conversation, we want to start to renegotiate uh, a lot of these things in our culture. Maybe that's something that we need to do, but it, it should be much slower, much more deliberate, and you can't just attach it to racial justice and and that type of work that has been going on uh, for a really long time and and for which uh, many, many sacrifices have been made to gain 
uh, sort of the moral position that the discussion on racial justice has gained. You can't just conflate that with all things secular progressive. Yeah, I agree. And, and the other problem I have with Rufo, and I think this is what you're getting at, is if you listen to Rufo's quote, he's admitting a sort of dishonesty. He's admitting that he's confl- conflating things and, and throwing things into a label that doesn't necessarily describe that. That's lying, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's no other way to put that. That is lying. And we cannot be okay with that as Christians. The major point that I'm trying to make is if you choose a side in the culture war, then you will not be able to heal the culture war. You can only perpetuate it. And it is a war that you will not win or should not want to win. Because the problem with the culture war is that when you join one of these sides, you're either you're going to leave out part of what the gospel demands. If you join the right and you run with all this critical race theory stuff, you are going to leave out a certain level of justice that is not okay. If you join the left and just go along with what they have to say as a Christian, because all you care about is racial justice, then you're going to leave out the family foundation. You're going to leave out things that may not seem pleasant to this world, but you're going to leave out truth and moral order and the ways that some things should work. Now, I'm not saying either side gets any of that stuff right, but you certainly leave one at once, one part of it out when you join this. So you have to you have to decide whether you want to perpetuate it because you're only mostly concerned about one piece that one of the groups cover. Are you willing to do it in a different way? And one of the main criticisms that I'm willing and will always be willing to confront is that the and campaign is trying to play both sides. The and campaign is not trying to play both. We talk how are we trying to play both sides when we. Every every episode go in on both sides in, in ways that I'm sure we're not trying to be offensive, but in ways I'm sure aren't pleasant to the people that are listening to. We're not trying to play both sides. What we're saying is that both sides are wrong. And we're saying that both sides are digging us deeper into this hole that we're already in. And unless you just don't have the moral imagination to see past conservatism and progressivism. You should be able to understand exactly what we're trying to do. But that's just the problem. A lot of Christians don't have the immoral imagination to see something different or just don't want to see something different because they're so mad at the other side. The only answer could be going against them in in every way that they can. So what we're saying is, yes, always choose what's right. Do not be do not equivocate about what's right. Don't try to find some uh, squishy middle ground when what's right is very clearly uh, 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 in one direction or the other. But that's very different than saying choose to run with progressives or conservatives. That's what people need to get. Choose the side of what's right, which is very different than just choosing to be a progressive or conservative. Chris, take us out. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. We are not playing both sides. Uh, We are actually saying neither side. And the reason it feels like in this current context that we're trying to play both sides is because of this opposition centered uh, politics and conversation. Because now what it means to be progressive doesn't have anything to do with actual progressivism. What it means to be progressive is to be against conservatives. And what it means to be conservative is to be against progressives. So when we go in on either side, people, it it, it establishes some dissonance in this current conversation because like, well, you sound like you're trying to be progressive and conservative. But remember, being progressive or conservative is not defined by speaking about the other side. 
right? Like we are trying to teach uh, believers and trying to be faithful in this way ourselves. I'm not saying that we do it perfectly, but to actually define our public positions based on a set of values that we actually do embrace and not based on a capacity to critique and criticize the other side. So no, we're not playing both sides. We are saying neither side. There you go. That's what it is, man. I like that mic drop. As you guys know, we're about to go into another segment, but as you guys know, we are now uh, sponsored in part by the Fetzer Institute. We want to give a shout out for them, for, for, uh, to them for being a sponsor of the Church Politics Podcast. And as always, letting us do what we do. As you can t- tell, nothing has changed about our message. And that's the great part of the partnership with Fetzer. So shout out to Fetzer. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Chris, I want to stay on this culture war theme because a lot of people have have been pointing out that the culture war often gets in the way of solving other very important problems, especially economic issues. And there was a uh, an interview that really went viral on CNN where uh, Newsweek's Batya Ungar Sargon Uh, She's the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. She was speaking on CNN's reliable sources about how the media covered this Virginia gubernatorial election. And and listen to what she says. She says this. She says that Tuesday, the election night, was a really good advertisement for my book because my book is arguing that a lot of, of this conversation around wokeness is actually about class. She said, we're hiding a class divide in America. We are hiding disgusting levels of income equality in America. We are hiding the total dispossession of the working class of all races by focusing on a very highly specialized academic language about race. That is quite an assessment. Now, I want to analyze this 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 uh, quote, Chris, and what and what she's what she's trying to say in the statement. I, I want to start by saying I, I personally think we need to talk about race and class, um, because unfortunately, I do see her point. There's a lot of folks who feel like if their main focus is race, if they bring class into it, then it takes away from their 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 conversation about race as as like the main factor. And then there's some people that do the same thing with class. I think we can talk about both, but I also think that she may have a point here. Because and this goes into something we've talked about before, Chris, the really big companies who are so happy to promote the symbolism and the narratives that come with, you know, some of this racial justice conversation and, you know, LGBTQ pride and all that, they're happy to promote those issues. And what it seems like it's doing is it's giving them cover for doing nothing about their awful employment practices and doing nothing about all these economic disparities. They can do the performance, all the performative stuff on social media and on their commercials, and they can get the high five and say, hey, now you guys are woke or whatever you want to call it. Without having any significant changes. And any time we're taking away talking about what's happening to the working class, what's happening with these huge disparities that we see, 
I want to invite somebody on here too to talk about how it's okay to have all this huge inflation with prices and everything else over the years. And somehow people are still getting paid the same amount. Something with that is wrong with me. But guess what? As we talk about some of these issues with the symbolism and all that, there's not always a lot of policy attached to the conversation. It, I do see how she could say that could be a distraction to a larger conversation about economics. I don't think it has to exclude race. That, that might be where I disagree with her. And I, I haven't read the book yet and I will. But, but I think we can talk about both of these things. Chris, does she have a point in that quote? Uh, that she was trying to get across in in, in uh, on CNN. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, that Bacia is getting to something. Um, there's certainly a a sense in which people, especially people in the media, are using the language and the conversation of race to distract from having that economic justice conversation. Um, I do think that there is a a profound overlap with the conversation around racial justice and the conversation around economic justice. Uh, I I talk about it all the time when people suggest that maybe the scriptures don't exhort us so strongly uh, toward issues of racial justice as as I've worked uh, in in my life. And one of my retorts uh, is the fact that the scriptures certainly urge us toward a particular concern for the least among us. And here in the United States, it just so happens that the least among us uh, in many of the categories, uh, those educational outcomes, economic outcomes, uh, you know, wealth, land ownership, all that stuff, the least among us seem to look a certain kind of way. Uh, and so it even that sort of conversation pushes us toward uh, issues of racial justice. And so while I, I agree with you, I wouldn't necessarily conflate, completely conflate issues of racial justice with issues of economic justice. Uh, I certainly think uh, dealing with issues of economic justice uh, would be a step toward uh, dealing with issues of racial justice. And there are a lot of people who really are not making progress toward either one of those goals. And and one of the main ways that they maintain that sort of status quo uh, is by signaling toward issues of race uh, in such a way that a a class-based coalition uh, to push for economic justice can never come together because it is divided over issues of race. And it's, it's a very... Uh, uh, sort of careful thing uh, uh, and, and, and a tricky thing to do in uh, the public discourse because those issues of race, they certainly sit there and they certainly complicate the conversation. But I do think that perhaps one of the greatest potentials that we have uh, in America today, and, and, and when you read even like the, the later writings uh, of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, you see his thinking certainly moving toward this, this direction, uh, that perhaps one of the most powerful coalitions that could uh, be established to to pursue justice in the United States would be a multiracial, multi-regional uh, coalition of poor and working class people uh, to deal with these issues of economic justice. And as we deal with those issues, we will be on the road uh, to pursuing uh, some of these issues of racial justice as well. 
But do you think the talk and I and I agree with you on that. I, I think there's a I think you put it very well. There's an overlap between racial justice and economic justice just based on how this country is operated. I don't think we need to ignore that. And some people are uncomfortable with putting those two things together. Do you think that the talk about critical race theory, the symbolism of all this, you know, of some of the progressive movement and how lawmakers and corporations can enter into that without doing much more is giving is is preventing us from getting to some of the real issue. It can that somewhat be in the way and how do you deal with both while not letting either one of them be kind of like a, a distraction so to speak. Yeah, it's is 100% true. Um I think that we can look at the 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 legislative session uh that is I guess it is still sort of uh winding down. Uh but you're able in these moments to put on kente cloth, right? And kneel in the Capitol, which is supposed to be like, oh, well, we're fighting for racial justice. Um, but we won't even discuss Tim Scott's uh, 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 police reform bill, right? Why? Well, because his police reform bill is racist. Well, why? Because he's a Republican. And what happens is that at the end of the session, we have no police reform, right? And everybody seems to be comfortable with that. Uh, so when all of your talk and all of your signaling actually manifest in nothing, it is really ma not materially different from somebody who's doing that same signaling uh, and, and stuff on the other side. And, and, and the same thing uh, from, from the right, you know, people give speeches and talk about how much they care about uh, families and strengthening homes and uh, making sure that, you know, moms are able to be home with their kids and that we have more, uh, uh, you know, education choice and all this stuff. But you get to the end of a legislative session and nothing is done. Uh, I, I've been calling it recently uh, the stuptocracy. And, and I think it is a broad consensus, actually, of folks in power on either side of the conversation uh, to to just perpetuate the same conversation. Well, we, we can't ever do anything. And the reason we can't is because those other guys are so evil. And we cannot continue uh, to allow folks in media and in government just to signal this way, because the thing that to me, Justin, says that, yes, what what this uh, uh, Bacha has uh, correct is that it is a distraction is that you, you get all this signaling, you get all this conversation, but you never get any actual progress. You never get any actual policy. Uh, and we're supposed to be happy with that just because you put the right thing on your Twitter. Uh, you know, we've talked about it uh, at, at length on this podcast. The NBA is all Black Lives Matter and heal the world and everything on their ads and stitching stuff on their jerseys. But you're actually perpetuating uh, uh, like real problems in, in China and other parts of the world, even, even here in the United States. Like there, there are actual things that you could be doing on actual issues and making real concrete improvements in people's lives. And you're not doing much of that. But we're supposed to be happy because you got the right thing stitched on your uniform. Your commentators say the right things. You got a nice little video montage. And we have to move past that. Amazon thinks Black Lives Matter. I should feel great that they put that up on a commercial while they treat their employees like crap, right? So, like, yeah. I appreciate the acknowledgement, but I don't know how much you believe that if you're not willing to do what it takes to help people live a, a better life. Uh, yeah, especially and, when so many of those people are black. Right, right, 
Right. And, and here's what I want to do, too, because just like Rufo took race and took critical race theory in and anytime race is brought up now he can put fold that into the critical race theory thing the same thing happens with class anytime you bring up class someone says oh this is class warfare this is class envy oh my god look at what they're trying to do and it's like guys come on that again that is very dishonest nobody's going into marxist theory or anything like that if you can't look at america and look at the data and see that people in the working class are struggling and that there's this huge divide when it comes to income that we have to do something about. If you can't look at the data and see that and you can't acknowledge it without calling it class warfare or class envy, I don't think you're I don't think you're willing to deal with the truth and really see what's going on. Not every conversation about class is Marxism or class warfare. Not every conversation about race is these far out iterations of critical race theory. This is what people do to avoid really dealing with certain issues. And if Christians aren't thoughtful and faithful enough to to see through that. Then I don't know how we heal, how we heal things. Can we have a conversation about income and not automatically say somebody, you know, somebody's just trying to to divide the classes? I'll let you I'll let you end this here, uh, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it's a 100% right. It, it sticks with the theme that we've been talking about. This stuff is a distraction. Uh, if there is a a prayer that I pray for the church uh, in today's, in this current moment, it is for discernment. Uh, because I think one of the major tactics of the enemy against us right now, especially in the public discourse, is distraction. You know, a lot of what we see in the news, a lot of what pops up on our social media feeds, what we read on the papers and see on television, uh, it is it is carefully crafted distraction uh, to make sure that we don't pay attention to the issues uh, that are actually impacting us and our families, our neighbors, our communities in this country. And we have to raise our level of discernment so that we see through these things so that we don't fall for the okie doke and start believing that the guy up the road because he makes a different amount of money than I do or uh, his skin is a different color uh, or maybe he comes from somewhere different regionally in the country that he's dangerous um, that I cannot build a relationship uh, and ultimately a public coalition with him and people like him uh, as long as we fall for that okie doke we are going to remain stuck uh, and 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 I I believe that because we are the church uh, that I that I can legitimately pray that God would raise our level of discernment because that's probably the biggest thing that we need uh, in in today's public discourse. Don't fall for the okie doke. You heard it here. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. <sighs> Once again, we got to talk about an issue, uh, the uh, $1 trillion infrastructure plan, but we're talking about it in a good way now. So let me not sigh too hard. Right. Uh, part of it is good. Maybe we'll see. We may disagree on that. The, the, the $1 trillion and it used to be higher than $1 trillion, but it's now $1 trillion infrastructure plan uh, that we've been really talking about, Chris. It seems like since Biden was elected, finally, finally passed Congress on Friday night. Again, infrastructure, as we always say, is the skeleton of the country. It's your roads, it's your bridges, it's your water pipelines, uh, your power grid, etc. And Biden plans to hold a signing ceremony when lawmakers return from from recess. But that has gone past both the House and the Senate. The administration expects that the law will add about two million jobs per year over a decade. Now, I want to say that that trillion dollars, I believe, is going to be spent over 10 years. And so they're saying it'll bring about two million, jo million jobs per year uh, over that decade. Uh, and here's some of what's in the actual uh, infrastructure um, law. It has about one hundred and ten billion dollars to repair highways and roads. That's about one hundred and seventy three thousand miles total of roads. It has thirty nine billion dollars for uh, public transportation. It has $65 billion for inter internet access, among other things. Uh, you might recall that initially, the more economically progressive Democrats were demanding that the bill be tied to a larger reconciliation bill, which would have uh, a whole lot of other stuff in it. Uh, some stuff dealing with climate change, uh, stuff dealing with you know family leave, all that stuff uh, was in there. Uh, but as I predicted, and I'm not saying I told you so, but as I predicted, they were bluffing and ended up voting for the bill with a commitment. I think a written commitment to pass the reconciliation bill uh, later, but they backed off of the idea that they would vote down the infrastructure bill if they didn't already pass or pass the reconciliation bill uh, together with the infrastructure bill. So that did not happen. I felt that they were bluffing mainly because. For progressives to vote down the infrastructure, I think I think that would have just been too much. Uh, I think Republicans would have made a huge deal about it. And maybe they should have uh, if they were willing to let go of trillions of dollars of very much needed infrastructure. We've even, even seen in this country as of late in the uh, Northeast where infrastructure failed and people died in storms and things like that. Our infrastructure, our bridges, our roads, our water pipelines, we're talking about. Uh, water pipelines that are very old and that we've seen affect children and, and have all kind of stuff in it that shouldn't have in it. Right. Um, these things need to change. We need to make sure that our infrastructure is improved. Could it have been bigger? 
we can have a conversation about that. But at the end of the day, I didn't think that this group that talks about kind of this 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 type of spending could shoot it all down because they didn't get more immediately. That that was my guess. And that seems to be what happened. But still, they might actually get this reconciliation bill. I think they're trying to make, make sure that they look into whether or not it's going to be uh, neutral when it comes to debt and all that other stuff. And then they'll proceed from there. Chris, what, what are your thoughts on the, the infrastructure bill and the hoped for uh, reconciliation bill and, and kind of the moves that a lot of progressive Democrats made on this on this uh, situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that this moment is is such a teachable moment. I hope that a lot of people are studying it and learning from it. Um, I, I would suggest that what we have here, the bill that has passed and, and the one that is coming, I just wouldn't call it the hoped for legislation. Uh, because most of the stuff uh, that was hoped for and is hoped for is no longer in that bill. You know, folks have voted for this and, and, and maybe folks didn't see these progressives in Congress right now did not see a way to uh, move forward with this legislation. I, I do not embrace uh, the the narrative that if that bill as currently constructed doesn't pass the House, uh that nothing happens on infrastructure. I think that if it doesn't pass the House, then folks have to go back to the uh, to the drawing board and, and to the table. You, you have a president who could not continue with nothing, right? So if this bill is not what can pass, uh, then something else has to pass. Do we have so, time to go back to the drawing board, though? I mean, infrastructure, I mean, we, we already have a backlog and the thing with that, that, and it's not, think, let's not, let's not, one trillion is a, a good amount, right? And when it comes to infrastructure, the backlog only grows; like it doesn't go down. Do we have time to go back to the drawing board with all the stuff that's going on? I don't. I don't think that you have to go back to the drawing board. You got to go back to the negotiating table. Uh, and I think on on both of these, you you've got time in the legislative session uh, to get to a better deal. Uh, you know. What what I see in, in both of these pieces of legislation, you know, we, we talk about the the numbers, um, but when, when we start looking into the numbers, you, you basically have two pieces of legislation. I think the infrastructure bill and now the whatever is going to come of the reconciliation bill, if it actually does come, uh, are, are bills that are basically written by like lobbyists uh, at, at this point. We just have to do better. I think that the biggest learning, though, uh, that, that I see here which has unfolded throughout this whole process is that it is really hard in the United States, which a lot of people don't like to admit this, uh, but inside the United States, even in a lot of states, like I'm in Illinois, it's a very blue state, but even in Illinois, uh, it's, it's sort of a, it's still sort of a center right mood uh, in the population uh, in the United States. Uh, and because of that, it's actually really hard to be super ultra socially progressive and economically populist at the same time, um, because a lot of the people who would have to be part of your audience on economic populism, you push them away with your super ultra social progressivism. Uh, and I think the main thing that we learn from this is that we actually just need a new kind of 
uh, legislator, as, at, at least a new kind of Democrat, right? Because if, if you're a Democrat, like we're the ones uh, who want to, who really want to see government like actually do stuff, right? Like there's an argument to be made that some folks would be happy if government does nothing. Uh, and if, if you actually are, you know, Democrat or Republican, if you're a person who economically, uh, from a populist uh, perspective, you want to see government actually do stuff. Like you would believe uh, in, you know, paid family leave. You would believe in uh, changing Medicare so that Medicare could actually negotiate prescription drug prices. Uh, like you would believe in those types of things. If, if you believe in that, you need a new type of legislator, one who can come with a values-based sort of uh, economic populism. When I talk about economic populism, I'm just talking about uh, doing things with the levers that are available to the government uh, to to make the economy work better for the the broad masses of the population. So don't read anything more into that. Uh, but you, it's very hard to pair that in the United States with this super ultra social progressivism, because then you just don't have enough folks who are pushing for some of these, you know, uh, uh, to negotiate prescription drug prices uh, and make sure that we actually pay for dental care and vision and hearing for senior citizens. Those things are immensely popular on both sides of the aisle. You just don't have enough folks, and I don't know if you have any folks, but you certainly don't have enough who can go out there, make that argument clearly, don't sort of mash it up as we've been talking about on this podcast, don't sort of mash all that up with all this super ultra uh, social progressivism. Stick on these issues. Maybe maybe it's, you know, introducing these things one at a time and, and focusing on, on votes there. But there's more that could be done, I think, theoretically. I do think in this Congress, you may not have the, the players necessary to actually get something like that done. Or a new kind of Republican. Right. Um, because I, I see the same issue on the, the Republican side. You have Holly and all these guys who say they're populist, but their commitments to corporate America and, and to these lobbyists seem to keep them from actually going all in on the popular. Because you think there could have been a broader negotiation between more of the Republicans who are claiming to to care about where the people are and, and these discrepancies that we've talked so much about. But there's something that's keeping them from doing it as well. And, and that's where we find ourselves where you can't really get to the main issue because you have on both sides folks tugging tugged away from what they say they're trying to do. You, you would be able to think and say, you know what, maybe I'll set maybe I'll push away some of this progressive ideology to get something done, you know, when it comes to the economy, but they can't do it because they're getting pushed by this donor and activist class on both sides that don't want to make those kind of changes. Which again goes to what we talked about in the in the last segment about why some of this stuff is just a distraction that people put up because they want to deal with their, their issues, but not the issues with a lot of people are are, are suffering from. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah, I think people if people come away from this conversation uh, and your analysis is, hey, the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is is bad and progressives shouldn't have voted for it. I, I, I can understand that, but I don't think that that's the, the best learning here. I think the best learning here is that both of these bills are far less useful than they should have been, could have been, if Congress wasn't so broken. And I yeah. think that the, the main learning for me is that Congress is badly broken. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And we've talked about this before. Maybe you disagree with me here, but 
I almost feel like progressives poisoned the well a little bit when they immediately added all this other stuff that had nothing to do with infrastructure or really the economy into this conversation and allowed it to, I mean, and, you you know, allowed Republicans or whoever else to kind of to put that at the forefront when you really maybe could have gotten more people involved in the conversation if you kept it about what it was supposed to to be about. So I want to be I want to be very clear. There are some things that have been taken out this bill that I don't really like it all. I, I I wish they were still in the bill. I, I think they could have gotten more done. Maybe our disagreement is did progressives have the leverage to 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 walk away? And if they walked away, would anybody so I, my thought is if you walk away, cinema, I don't know that she cares of anything passed. So I th- I feel like by walking away, that doesn't force her hand to do anything different than she was going to do anyway. And so you almost were in a position where you had to get as much as you could and I, that's why I thought at the end of the day, it was it was somewhat of a bluff because they had to get something done with as bad as our infrastructure is, which to me doesn't take Republicans or other Democrats or anybody else. It doesn't give them any credit or doesn't take them off the hook. They're they're responsible for that stuff, too, and should care about uh, those issues. And I, I'm not sure that anybody cares enough. Yeah, I, I, I think if you get into a negotiation and I, I guess the progressives read the the uh, the. The, the situation the same way you do, Justin. I, I just think don't get in a negotiation um, if you're not willing to walk, right? That's, that is, I think, basic negotiation. Uh, I would suggest to the progressive uh, caucus, such as it is, uh, that if you did not move this bill through the Congress, actually make everybody deal with the L, right? Like we don't have a Congress that says if if they vote this bill down, it can't be reintroduced next week or two weeks. If you really vote it down and Senator Manchin and the Republicans, nobody actually moves. You come back to, to, to the floor in a week or two and vote the same legislation, uh, but to not even force the issue to me, I mean, if, if I were running the, the progressive caucus, the whole thing would have been very different from from the get. But I think that it, it, it just puts you in a situation where folks don't have to take you seriously uh, in conversation if you're not even willing to come to the big stage, because that's all this would have been. I don't think this would have been an end to the session, an end to uh, even this legislation as currently constructed. But the inability to come to the big stage when you're getting the pressure calls from the president, people saying that you cost the Democrats, you know, Virginia and all this stuff, and to not be able to stick to your principles, it says to me, like, how deeply held are these principles and how how well are you handling this negotiation, which, again, points me back to, is there just some some of that, like, internal dissonance that makes it hard to manage the moment when you really are trying to be this super ultra uh, social progressive, which actually, you know, if, if we can be honest, really doesn't reflect the broad mood of the country, but then also trying to represent what really does reflect the, the broad and widely, widely felt needs of people in the country around uh, economic issues. I just think that that tension uh, is, is too much to try to, hold all of that in one place. I don't think it, it one piece plays to such a narrow segment of the population that it, it seems to to create friction internal in the negotiation and just all around. 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I think you should always go into a negotiation being willing to walk away. But it, it seems like we're debating how long to hold the bluff, <laughs> right? Uh, do you hold the bluff before the vote or after the vote? And I just don't think that bluff in either instance is going to get cinema or whoever to move in the direction that you want to move to. I, I think the difference is I don't think they had that level, that leverage. And I don't think even though they didn't get everything they wanted, I don't think that's a violation of their principles. It's a violation of their their initial statement, which maybe they shouldn't have made that statement if they weren't willing to hold to it. I give you that. But I think this is better than nothing. We'll see what happens with reconciliation. You know, I I, I love it that you and me went back and forth, forth on this one, because I, I think you're coming from a reasonable perspective, too. It's, it's one of really of strategy. I think in, at the end of the day, we're trying to get at the same thing. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens from here. Anything else, Chris, to, to add to that? Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad also that that we're taking this on because I, I I wish that this was what you know took place more uh, in Congress. We probably would get uh, to uh, some some better legislation, but um, yeah, I mean, if if progressives feel like this reconciliation bill reflects their most important values, then you know that's what they feel to, to some extent, uh, right? I mean, not you know. It's it's a, it's a product of negotiation in which I think we've both said that we would want more. It's still a lot to really walk away from, not not bluff walk away, but to really walk away for good. Uh, I don't know that they would have wanted. I think I think that the outcome of that would have been worse than than to pass something that where you didn't get all the stuff you wanted or even most of the stuff you wanted. So and that that is serious. Let me, let me ask you one question. Out, yeah. The outcome for the progressives politically or for the the country practically would have been worse which which one are you saying the outcome both? for the for the both i think the outcome if you get nothing done on this trillion dollars and and the biden administration is losing clout and losing political capital every day if you get nothing done here number one i think the country comes out worse because you had a trillion dollars is nothing to sneeze at that's still a lot of work that's going to get done uh but then it also hurts progressive pol- politically because it looks like look you guys just can't govern this is the best chance we had to, to really get something done. You you couldn't be reasonable enough to just take what you could get and 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 chalk it up as a you know as a, a product of of compromise. I think they could have pushed a little bit further. I really do. But you know, here we are. I I I, I guess I say that and then I, I counter myself with say could could this group have pushed further? I don't know. I mean, you I I think you would love to see a, a caucus of folks who is so serious about these economic issues that they're like, Hey, we're going to make sure that we put the Hyde amendment in. Let's, let's talk about maybe some of these other uh, issues where, where we can actually work across the, the aisle and maybe get some, some economic populist Republicans uh, looking at some, some uh, offers that, that are too, uh, you know, too good to, to walk away from uh, politically for them. I, th- I think that if you had a different, sort of framework there there's a a lot more that could be done maybe you just don't have the right the right group fighting for these issues uh but hey i'm glad that we i'm glad that we got uh uh some stuff coming for infrastructure i hope that it doesn't get lost in the consultant flow Man, that is something that, you know, that there needs to be some real watchdogs looking at Uh, what Chris is talking about is that sometimes when you have these bills, especially when it comes to infrastructure, a large percentage of that goes not to actually the infrastructure getting done, but goes to consultants telling you how to get the infrastructure done and all this other stuff. 
most of this should not go to consultants. Hopefully, you know, we got some watchdogs really paying attention to that because that is an issue. And that doesn't mean consultants aren't needed. Don't get me wrong. But when people think of one trillion going to infrastructure, they want it to go to the actual roads and stuff like that. And the way this works, sometimes that's not always the case. So we do need to be looking out for that. But excellent conversation. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. We covered a, a lot of ground, even uh, went back and forth a little bit. And that's always good. As usual, Ann Kemp, uh, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. I said, kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology. Empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?